Welcome back, everyone, to So As We Are Saying, a physical therapy podcast. Today, we're joined by Emily Parat, who just happens to be my fiance, and we'll be discussing perspectives on integrating women's health into standard orthopedic practice. Also with us is our co-host, Mike Reeves. Hello, everybody. So let's jump right into it. Emily, tell us a little bit about your background in women's health and how you gained interest in the topic and what your experience is with it. Sure. So um, like you and Mike at University of Pittsburgh, we had one really good lecture about women's health during physical therapy school. And while I felt like the rest of the class was giggling, trying to do a Kegel, I kind of had a huge light bulb go off telling me this is kind of what I was meant to do. And I felt like that was the first time physical therapy actually felt like a really good fit for me. Then during my clinical rotations at Pitt, I did quite a few rotations with women's health, a couple in outpatient clinics, and then six months at McGee Women's Hospital working mostly with breast cancer patients, and then another six months at an outpatient women's health facility. So it was a really great experience, and I felt really lucky to be at Pitt where there was so much opportunity to learn and grow as a women's health PT. Talk to us a little bit about what populations you feel are the most important to screen for us as orthopedic clinicians as far as identifying potential women's health contributors. So that's a really good question, especially when I'm talking with orthopedic PTs who just maybe don't have the experience with women's health. It's kind of a broad question. I kind of think you should always be on red alert for, you know, someone you can help with with women's health. But a lot of times you want to look for your mothers, of course, especially kind of the young women who just had a baby. A population I see a lot are like a marathon runner or a crossfitter who just had a baby. Those are both kind of intense tasks that require a lot of muscle endurance um, for the pelvic floor as well as glute activation. So they oftentimes can experience leaking, prolapse of the pelvic floor, heaviness in the pelvic floor, etc. So those are really good people to look for. At the same time, I think it's really beneficial to pay a little bit of extra attention to your young dancers, gymnasts, female athletes. They tend to have something that we would consider high tone pelvic floor. So kind of the opposite of that loose pelvic floor after you've had a baby. It's more so they've kind of been so accustomed to holding things really tight and kind of sucking it in all the time that their pelvic floor muscles are often hypertonic and that just makes it really difficult for them to have a meaningful contraction. So to sum that back up, I'd say a lot of your distance runners, a lot of your crossfitters, heavy weightlifters, especially if they've just had a baby, and then that young female population, dancers, gymnasts. Yeah, I think that's a good summary of the patients that you really want to look out for. I know in my realm, I typically see a lot of low back and hip. And these patients typically, especially if they're women over 55, tend to have some component of of a women's health contribution. I even had a young girl who was in her 20s who came in for hip pain, but it was a really bizarre presentation where she kind of got cramping in her groin. It didn't really match a muscle strain. Um, She was very vague with her mechanism of injury. And then to add even more awkwardness to the situation, two of my interns were in the evaluation with me. And eventually, once the presentation really didn't present like something I typically saw, I asked them to step out of the, the room. And I eventually asked her if you know if she had pain with, with intercourse, just because that's one of the main questions that's going to take you down that women's health path. And she seemed very relieved that I actually asked the question because that was her mechanism. The, the injury actually started while she was having intercourse. And And then eventually I referred this patient to Emily and she ended up doing really well. But I think sometimes it's difficult for us as orthopedic therapists who see people for general, you know, musculoskeletal pains to kind of take that path and bring up those awkward questions. And I think, especially as a male, it makes it even more challenging. 
So absolutely, especially as a male, I know those are hard things to address. But at the same time, you hit it right on the head. That sense of relief she felt that somebody finally brought it up. And that's something I see all the time when working in an orthopedic setting, just having the background in women's health when I hear something a little bit off and I ask them, you know, just out of curiosity, are you experiencing any leaking or urinary urgency or is intercourse painful for you? So many times you just see them light up because they're so relieved somebody asked the question, whether it's coming from me or coming from you guys, uh, I, I can almost guarantee they're going to feel relieved that somebody had the knowledge to ask that sort of question, even when it's difficult. And the other thing you mentioned that's important to note is women's health kind of tends to be the catch-all for hip pain that's not getting better, back pain that's not getting better, even like flank pain and lower abdominal pain, you name it, it all kind of ends up at women's health. But there is some literature that indicates SI joint dysfunction and low back pain have a pretty high correlation with pelvic floor dysfunction. I wanted to kind of jump back just a little bit to Emily's first point. We were kind of talking about uh, different types of populations. She mentioned three kind of types of conditions. I think she was talking about um, pelvic floor weakness. She talked about the feeling of heaviness in the pelvic floor and also pelvic floor tightness. And I was just curious what different patients might have as far as subjective complaints for kind of each one of those things. Absolutely. That's a really good question because sometimes they can present very differently. Sometimes they can present very similarly. So those patients who have high tone, again, you're looking at somebody who's probably young, probably have not had a baby before, maybe even has never had intercourse before. Okay. And then their symptoms could be pain with intercourse, pain with putting a tampon in, groin pain, or their urinary symptom might be, I feel like I have to go a lot, or I'm leaking with exercise. There's a lot of interesting images of gymnasts in the middle of their like floor routine or when they're about to do vault, when they're running and then they get on the vault where you actually see a little bit of urine squirting out of them. And these are young girls. And it's just because they're kind of taught to strengthen all these muscles, but they very much so neglect their pelvic floor. And instead of pulling up and engaging those muscles, they actually almost bear down and that's when they start losing urine. So they're going to have urinary issues, but it's not going to be the, oh, I'm leaking all day or, oh, I can't stop going to the bathroom. It's going to be more, I'm kind of leaking with effort, especially when they're doing their sport of choice. And then also variations of pelvic pain. The women who are just dealing with incontinence, there's different kinds of incontinence. You can have stress incontinence, which is kind of laughing, sneezing, coughing, and losing urine. Then there's frequency of I'm peeing all the time and I can't stop, or there's urgency of I feel like I have to pee all the time. In addition to that, that feeling of heaviness I brought up is what we have with women who are experiencing prolapse. So a new mother can have leakage and incontinence without actually having prolapse or the falling down of the pelvic floor organs. But women who are running and almost feel like a heaviness kind of pounding maybe with every step, that's because that pelvic floor isn't engaging as they do a strenuous activity. And those organs kind of might be falling down on the pelvic floor and they feel that pressure. So strengthening the pelvic floor as well as the surrounding uh, proximal hip musculature can really reduce that sensation. Mike, any follow-up questions on that? Uh, No, I think that that answered it pretty well for the most part, yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, Emily, talk to us a little bit about what are some important screening questions that we should be asking our patients with orthopedic complaints, your general low back pain, hip pain. Those women that we kind of talked about might fit that mold for us to identify as, as having women's health contributors. What questions can we ask them specifically to help guide them to the right provider? So there are a million questions I would want you to ask. And without getting too far into detail, it 
firstly depends on, on what you're seeing them for. So if it's, for example, a low back patient and they're really not fitting any of your true low back paradigms, then that's an instance where you might want to start asking, hey, by any chance, do you have pain with intercourse or do you have pain with inserting anything? Or maybe you would ask them, do you do a lot of biking? Do you sit on a hard surface a lot during the day? Those are the people with pelvic pain. You're going to want to ask those specific questions. Now, when it comes to those who have leaking, again, well, when are you leaking? Do you leak when you cough, sneeze, or laugh? Does it happen all day? Do you feel like you have to run to the bathroom all the time more than usual? If so, I want you to know that's common, but it's not normal. And that's the biggest thing I want you to tell these women. If you kind of think there might be an issue and you start asking the questions, are you leaking? Are you going to the bathroom more often than usual? Or how many times in the night are you waking up the void? That's a really good question as well. And again, with those patients, you let them know it's common, but it's not normal and it's something we can work on. Emily, could you unpack the sitting on a bike uh, complaint a little bit more? Yes, I can. So without getting too complex, because it's really not, when you think when you're on a bike, the way the bike seat kind of puts a lot of extra pressure on the pelvic floor. Women who do a lot of biking and have that constant pressure on the pelvic floor, they tend to fall more in that high tone group, um, kind of squeezing, but also having that pressure right there on the groin kind of can send a reaction to those muscles to either push up or pull down. Just having that constant tactile response coming in on the pelvic floor can cause confusion of the muscles. Just sometimes they'll become more hypertonic. And can that be a complaint in males as well? Yes. And I love that question because women's health is not really an appropriate title. It's women's and men's pelvic health. And I do know quite a few men who become avid distance bikers who have the very same issue. And it just ends up being kind of high tone of those pelvic floor muscles, hypertonic muscles that become very painful and kind of stay in that hypertonic state. Then they end up pulling so tightly on their bony prominences that it can even present as, you know, tenderness on the pubic bone, tenderness on the ischial tuberosities, tenderness back in the coccyx area, just from those muscles pulling on them so tightly. So yes, men and women have the exact same issue in that instance. And I think if you think about this in the context of some of the different episodes that we've had up to this point in regards to a stress overload injury, somebody sitting on a hard surface doing an endurance bike race is going to be a static stress overload. So that's that can potentially be a pain generator for them and then create that pelvic floor dysfunction via arthrogenic inhibition. That's muscle inhibition due to a uh, inflammatory response or stress overload injury. So that's just also something to consider as well is that the actual static stress overload may create a dysfunction of the pelvic musculature due to a pain process. Absolutely. Good point. Emily, another point that I wanted to touch on as far as questions that we should be asking our patients, specifically women in this case, is asking about if they had a C-section. Just because we know that that's a very traumatic surgery, and at the same time, I know with your current doula training, you've been doing a lot of reading about how the prevalence is increasing and how this can actually really affect the abdominal wall and really affect the function of, of the surrounding musculature and increase the prevalence of low back pain in this population. Yeah, that's a really great question. C-sections are way more prevalent now than they were, say, 
15, 20 years ago. And there's a lot of interesting literature about that without getting up on my soapbox about it. But nonetheless, C-sections are becoming much more prevalent. A lot of women are almost getting bullied into having them, which makes me really sad. And that just kind of speaks to how little women feel confident speaking on their behalf. And they just really trust what, what their physicians are telling them, which you'd hope that they could and should trust them. But there's some really interesting stuff going on with a lot more women having C-sections and probably need them. But aside from that, I think it's important for the orthopedic clinician to remember that C-sections exist basically. So when you're working with someone maybe with low back pain and you're kind of teasing through your history and seeing maybe they have a weak core, etc. Even if you are observing the abdominal muscles, even if you do lift their shirt up to look at their muscle contraction, the C-section scars are very low. So you likely wouldn't see it. Sometimes they could even be so low that you might not feel comfortable asking them to see it. But I would at least ask the question, if you know they've had kids, ask if it was a vaginal delivery or a cesarean. After you have your C-section, essentially, they're just helping you recover from a major surgery because it is a major surgery. But like so many surgeries, they're not educated at all on what's going to happen afterwards. You have a huge cut in your abdomen. Organs are literally removed and then put back in and then you're sewn back up. So you have scar tissue, you have a big scar on your abdomen, on your abdomen and no one ever teaches you how to engage your abdominal muscles again after that. So you're going to see a lot of core weakness with them. And then in addition to that, with the scar tissue, with any adhesions right near the bladder there, you could have some incontinence. The bladder might have a hard time expanding, might have a hard time contracting, and it might just be painful when your bladder starts to fill up because those adhesions kind of start to stretch and it can almost create a burning sensation down there. So just asking women, if you know they've had a kid, did you have a C-section? How's your scar doing? That could go a long way in your treatment for them. And I think that presents an opportunity for us as therapists to really expand our our reach and really communicate with these providers, the OBGYN, the ones that are delivering, trying to fill that gap in a, in a rural community, really reaching out to them, letting them know benefits of physical therapy with those that had C-section and the potential risk of them not having the appropriate rehabilitation after that childbirth as far as increasing their prevalence of low back pain, incontinence, whatever it might be. Absolutely. And then another thing that I think is hard to tackle as an orthopedic physical therapist, especially in the outpatient setting, when you don't maybe have that intimate space you can go into like a treatment room, and especially with a, a male to woman situation, um, how can you do a Kegel? And how can you as the outpatient PT assess if someone can do a Kegel? That's a question I get a lot. And it can be hard because I find the easiest and best way to assess someone's Kegel is doing an intrapelvic exam and having them contract around my fingers. I mean, I feel how much it contracts. I feel if they have a lot of range of motion on their pelvic floor, it's very it's very easy to tell. But there are ways to assess it, you know, without doing an intrapelvic exam. So the first thing you can do is you can ask the patient, "Hey, can you do a Kegel?" And some women will go, "I'm not sure." Most women will say, "I'm not sure," or they'll say, "I think, but I could be doing it wrong." Women do not seem to be very confident in their ability to do a Kegel, which again, I put that on the OBGYN. When you help somebody deliver a baby and see what they have to push through their pelvic floor muscles and all that goes on and all the trauma that happens to that area and then you're not going to properly cue them on how to strengthen those muscles really disappoints me. But nonetheless, you ask them, do you know if you can? And they'll probably say, I don't know or I think. The one question I like to ask with a huge disclaimer is, can you stop your urine while you're peeing? Can you stop your flow of urine? That is not something you want them to do all the time. You're not going to tell them, I want you to try this every time you pee. You're going to tell them, don't do this all the time. It's not good for you to stop your urine flow all the time, okay? 
most women, when I ask that question, go, God, no, I can't do that. I would never stop it. Or yeah, I can kind of stop it, but a little bit's going to trickle out or they'll say, yeah, no problem. That gives me a lot of information. If they can't do it at all, they don't even know where their pelvic floor is. There's no engagement. Nothing's happening. If they're doing it and there's still some urine trickling out, that tells me, okay, they do know how to Kegel and those muscles are awake. They're alive. They're just not well. We could strengthen them. The girl who can do it as is no problem, right? So that's a question that could give you a lot of information. And then the visuals on how to teach a Kegel, again, it's hard to do verbally. But one of the examples I like to give, the one that seems to get the best response is, imagine that there's a straw leading up to your vaginal opening. When you Kegel, you would be sucking the liquid up through that straw into your vaginal opening. You just really want them to picture pulling up, up, up through that straw so liquid would come all the way up to the vaginal opening. The other thing they can do that gives them a little bit of tactile feedback is having them sit on a Swiss ball, even a hard surface. But the Swiss ball is good because when you're sitting on it, it kind of conforms to your shape. And so when they Kegel, you can almost feel that lift up off the Swiss ball and they'll feel a little bit of space between their pelvis and the ball. So that's a good way to for to give them like kind of a tactile cue. Have a seat, think up, think up, think up, pulling up with those muscles, making sure they are not bearing down. And that's a good way to indicate they kind of have some tactile feedback there. Now, the other thing you need to look for, if they're just kind of sitting on the treatment table and you say, well, do a Kegel right now. You can learn a lot from that too. All right. If you see them suck in their abdominals really tight, they're probably not doing an effective Kegel. Yes, it is pretty much impossible to do a Kegel without bringing in some of the abdominal muscles, especially the transverse abdominis, but it shouldn't be dominant when they do a Kegel. Similarly, if you tell them to Kegel and you see them kind of lift up in the air because they just squeeze their glutes really tight, that is not an effective Kegel. So something you're going to want to do is kind of do some coordination training between the glute, the abdominals, and the pelvic floor muscles. Yes, they should and will work together, but none of them should be dominating the other. I think that's a good point to touch on is that if somebody is trying to Kegel and instead they're actually bracing, more than likely they're not doing in that that straw maneuver, that drawing in method. They're actually bracing down and bulging down on that pelvic floor. Um, so that's something you definitely want to look out for because your patient might try to Valsalva or even just brace instead of actually performing the Kegel. And then I think you alluded to this is once they can actually activate the Kegel, then you want to layer that into your abdominal activation, your glute activation, your bridging see if they can sequence it into higher level movements. Again, once they get to more complex movements, it's going to be less about necessarily being able to volitionally do that every time, but more of just like a subconscious muscle retraining as they progress. So Emily, we talked about the two main different things being high tone and and low tone uh, pelvic floors. And so I assume that the exercise interventions are going to be a little bit different for those. Are you able to kind of break some of those down for us? Yes, absolutely. Again, there's always going to be a little bit of crossover. Probably both need glute strengthening, probably both need core strengthening. But aside from that, those women who have a higher pelvic tone, you're going to want to work on your diaphragmatic breathing. Uh, The pelvic floor actually goes up and down just as the diaphragm does as you inhale and exhale. So doing that diaphragmatic breathing actually encourages the pelvic floor to fully relax. The other thing I like to do with my high tone patients, a little bit of butterfly stretching, it's all relaxation stuff, child's pose, deep squat stretch, etc. Another really fun technique is if they know how to Kegel, I have them break the Kegel up. I'll tell them contract 25%, contract 50%, contract 100%. Now, do the same thing as you relax. Relax 25%, relax 50%, relax 100%. Breaking it up like that encourages the pelvic floor to utilize all the motion it actually has. So that's a really fun technique I like to use. 
in terms of those who need to be able to quickly turn on the pelvic floor muscles or build up the pelvic floor muscle endurance. There's a few exercises I really love. Um, You can have them bounce on the Swiss ball and say, okay, I want you to bounce for 30 seconds and I want you to hold your Kegel all 30 seconds and then let it go. Bounce again, let it go. That encourages that kind of up and down gravitational forces with the pelvic floor muscles working. Once that feels really good, get on the trampoline. You can bounce, you can do little jogs on the trampoline, etc. Those are really good. Another thing I like to do for a quick response time for the pelvic floor. So these are the people who maybe are doing jumping exercises, high impact, or even just a really quick like Olympic style lift. I have them work on reaction time, I'll play catch with them. And I'll say, every time you catch the ball, Kegel. All right, throw it back. When you catch it, Kegel. And it just works on a really quick response, a kind of quick flick of the muscles. That's really useful with kind of higher intensity exercises. And then the last really important thing I want you to remind your patients if they're having leaking, this goes a lot for your CrossFitters. You need to be pulling up with the pelvic floor muscles on your way down. So think squats, think lunges. As you descend, pelvic floor should be pulling up. So it takes a little bit of coordination. It's a great way to work on pelvic floor timing and to make sure those muscles are engaging during movements that are typically going downwards and have gravity going down. You want the pelvic floor muscles to be pulling up. So it's good for squats, good for lunges, good for getting in and out of a chair, etc. One thing that I also wanted to point out and talk about that Emily mentioned earlier is doing um, or measuring the Kegel or seeing if you can actually feel the patient Kegel during an intravaginal exam. And I think this is something that we've encountered on our travels is we've tried to find women's health therapists or specialists that we can refer to. And what we've noticed is a lot of women's health therapists or those that say they do women's health actually don't do the internal exams. Everything is external with biofeedback. You're right. I have seen clinicians misrepresent themselves as pelvic floor PTs just because they'll say, oh, yeah, we have the biofeedback. We do pelvic floor, which we hardly ever use biofeedback. I don't want to say that, but it's not our main mode of treatment for pelvic floor dysfunction or weakness. It, it doesn't do as much as one would think. And so as soon as I hear that, I think, oh, oh gosh, you're just not up to date. You don't really know what's going on in the women's health world if you think you're totally good to go just because you have a biofeedback machine. So that is what I like to call a red flag. If a clinician says, oh, yeah, I got it. I have biofeedback. They probably don't got it. So Emily, could you uh, discuss what exactly biofeedback is for the pelvic floor for those that don't know? Yes, absolutely. So when we're doing anything with the pelvic floor, unfortunately, you do have to picture a probe that you're going to insert vaginally. We have one for e-stim of the pelvic floor and we have one for biofeedback. So just like any biofeedback, um, you insert the probe and it has this little cord that attaches to the computer and you open your computer program. Now, I tend to almost exclusively use biofeedback with women who have really high tone. And that's because, and and I've used it on myself, so I'm a really good example. I always had high pelvic floor tone, so my Kegels were not very meaningful. I had an intra-pelvic exam done on myself, and my coworker said, it feels like you're doing nothing. And I'm thinking, oh God, I'm squeezing really hard. But then when she had me relax, I didn't go anywhere. So we hooked me up to biofeedback and I kind of saw where my resting tone was. And then when I did a contraction, I saw a teeny little jump and then it went right back to where it was. There was just so little movement. I knew that I wasn't getting a strong contraction and then my range of motion wasn't good enough to have a full relaxation. That's when I think it's the most beneficial. Does that make sense, Mike? Yes, that does. Thank you. Yeah. 
So we kind of jumped the gun on my next question here. It was going to be, what can we do as outpatient orthophysical therapists to address this particular population when a women's health specialist isn't available? But I think we've kind of discussed the component of adding the Kegel and how to appropriately teach it and have our patients perform it. But then I think the second, which is a very underrated intervention, is going to be just our patient education, telling them what to do, what to expect, just providing them with information to help them deal with their experience. So Emily, talk to us a little bit about what specific education we can give for the different women's health population and um, what women typically perceive as normal that really actually isn't normal. Good question. So I'll start with the, the back part of that question. I have been in so many orthopedic clinics where I hear patients who aren't mine say to their PT, oh, that's just life after having a baby. And they're usually talking about leaking. The PT might have them doing squats, might have them do agility stuff, jumping, what have you. And they might you know, say, oh, I'm not really comfortable with this. That's, that's just motherhood. And that's them saying they're leaking and they just expect that's what life is like after you have a baby. Again, that's the thing I want you to listen for when you hear these really casual comments by women downplaying what their body has been through, advocate for them and say, hey, I know you think that that's just part of being a new parent, but you do not have to live like that. There are people who can help you and, and I want to be one of those people. So first and foremost, listen for women downplaying you know, what their bodies have gone through because it really is amazing what, what a woman does to bring a life into the world. Now, if you have somebody that you know has something called urgency or frequency, so someone who says, I'll go to the bathroom and then as soon as I walk out, I feel like I have to go again and I run back and I push more urine out. That really tends to be something that's more trained than an actual problem. So it's almost like when you're a kid and your mom says, well, try to go to the bathroom before you go so we don't have to stop. That's exactly what you don't want women to do. You don't want them to just try to pee for the heck of it. You want their bladder to get full before they void. But women tend to get nervous about having to go to the bathroom a lot. So they're constantly trying so they don't have to go while they're at the store. Those are the women we need to do something called urge inhibition. That's a really easy thing for you to educate and teach in the clinic. All that means is you're going to tell them when you feel that urge come on, do 10 to 15 Kegels. For whatever reason, that actually subsides the urge and the literature is kind of out on that. We don't really know why, but it does. Once that urge goes away, go about your business. When it comes back, then you go to the bathroom. That helps increase the length of time between each void and that can help really get rid of that, that urgency. The other things you can educate on that really is so easy and not really personal at all is are you hydrating? And if you are, what are you hydrating with? A lot of women who have urgency, frequency, and even leakage get freaked out by hydrating themselves. They're like, oh, well, I just stopped drinking. I don't really drink water. I don't really drink anything. And of course, we know hydrating is important for any healthy individual, but especially these women who are maybe voiding a lot or feel like they have to void a lot. When your bladder is full with water, your urine's really nice and diluted. So it's not going to irritate the bladder. The bladder is going to fill up the whole way and then it's going to expel the urine. But if all the urine that's in your bladder is really concentrated because you're not hydrating it, the bladder is going to say, get this out. And that's when you're going to start feeling like you have to pee all the time. So the bladder is going to try to push out that really concentrated urine. So telling these women, hey, even though it might sound scary, keep drinking water. The second thing is you can always educate on bladder irritants. And this is just the craziest thing. When I was in Washington for my last job, my coworker said, hey, my patient's having some pelvic floor stuff. Will you go talk with her? And I chatted with her and I went through my usual speech and I just said, is there any chance that, you know, you're consuming a lot of bladder irritants like citrus fruit, vitamin C? 
And she went, oh my God, I'm eating like two grapefruits a day, five clementines. Those are all bladder irritants. And she just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it that the answer was yes. I eat a very large amount of citrus fruit. So we cut that back and her urgency and frequency went away. So she brought it on herself just by her love of citrus fruit. So never overlook what diet and what we're hydrating with and how it can influence what's going on with our bladder. Even, you know, some women will say, yeah, I love to drink green tea. I drink three green teas a day. Green tea is a bladder irritant. And sometimes a woman will go, well, you know what? I love green tea so much. I'm just going to deal with it. That's fine. At least we found the issue. But just to give you a quick list of bladder irritants, some things you wouldn't think of, um, coffee, tea, alcohol, anything highly acidic, anything with caffeine, vitamin C, any tomato product, vinegar, artificial sweeteners, which is interesting. And then also daily vitamins. Again, they have usually a high vitamin C content. So things that you wouldn't think to ask, especially, I think, the artificial sweeteners and the daily vitamins, you know, just saying, maybe try going a few days without it and see what happens. If nothing happens, whatever, start taking it again. But they're definitely things that you should feel comfortable discussing. Great. Uh, yeah, Emily. So I was, um, I want to kind of talk a little bit more about our examination for, for some of these patients. So as orthotherapists, we see a lot of back pain and hip pain, things along those lines, maybe some hip surgeries and back surgeries. Um, and so we go through our red flag screening questionnaire with every patient as we learned in school. Then that there's, have you had any bowel or bladder changes? And I feel like a lot of people kind of skim, skim over that one. Uh, what are some of the patients that might be in our clinic that we might really want to spend a little bit of extra time? on that question or actually give it maybe a little bit more time than we have in the past. I think this just goes back to, again, your your new mothers or those young female athletes. And I feel like a broken record here. But when you ask a new mother if she's had any bladder changes, she will probably say no. Because again, she thinks what's happening to her is normal. So I would kind of think maybe we can rephrase that question. Any bowel or bladder changes, that includes leaking, urgency, and frequency. I'm thinking if we if we start using those buzzwords with especially again I'm, I'm telling you new moms and maybe these really young athletes using those three words might really ring a bell for them and they make a well yeah but I thought that was normal and there's your doorway but I think just the bowel bladder changes from my experience people blow that question women blow that question off Emily We've talked about uh, incontinence a lot, and we've talked about pain with intercourse. Are there any other subjective complaints that we haven't given as much attention to yet that you feel like are relevant to women's health? Yes. There's one other red flag, I think, that you can listen for. It sounds really basic, but if a woman says that she's experiencing frequent UTIs with pelvic floor dysfunction, especially with spasms surrounding the urethra, women are getting misdiagnosed with urinary tract infections very often. So that's something you can look at and you can ask them, are you being diagnosed with UTIs or are you just having some strange sensations that, again, that urgency to go all the time, some discomfort while you're going, etc.? Those are things that you can talk about. The other thing, it all ties in with incontinence, but these are just different kinds we don't really talk about. Women who feel like they have to push really hard to pee. 
when you sit down to pee, it should really just come right out. You shouldn't really have to be valsalvaing or bearing down very hard. It should be somewhat easy. So these women who feel like they really have to force their urine out, again, I like to look at them as maybe somebody who has an abdominal scar, somebody that has really high tone, someone that has muscle spasm. Those are just some different things aside from your normal like leaking and peeing a lot. Women who have to push really hard to pee or to have a bowel movement as well. And with those people, I always want you to teach the blow as you go method. So as we go to void, you inhale. And then as you exhale, that's when you should start pushing your urine out. That decreases intra-abdominal pressure and that eliminates any chance of that bulge of the pelvic floor muscles or any of those abdominal muscles or pelvic muscles pushing down into the pelvic floor, the pelvic bowl. So just something to think about, even just training with lifting, getting in and out of a chair, exhale with effort, blow as you go. Those are very important things to be thinking about. Yeah, that's all important information. And switching gears here, I want to talk about the lesser known part of women's health that really I didn't know about until you really talked to me about it. And that's going to be the oncology side with your head and neck cancer patients and your patients that have breast cancer or are status post mastectomy. Can you talk to us a little bit more about this population, some specific complaints? I know you might get someone to the clinic that may have not had a recent surgery, but it may have a history of mastectomy or history ahead of or a history of head and neck cancer and now might be seeing Mike or myself or shoulder pain. So I think this is an important population to consider, to ask about their past medical history, and then to think about these specific considerations when it comes to your management. Yes. So I will start talking about head and neck cancer. There's not a ton of literature yet, so I'll make it brief. But when I was doing my women's health rotation at the University of Pittsburgh, my clinic, I'm working with Susan George, who is kind of like the women's health mother of the world, in my opinion. She's just the best. But she realized there's a void in care for these patients who have recently had treatment for head and neck cancer. There's been a somewhat recent spike in head and neck cancer in people who were previously diagnosed with HPV. And so it tends to be middle-aged men and women. As of now, there seems to be more men than women, likely because HPV typically presents itself as cervical cancer in a woman. It's now manifesting as like head, neck, and throat cancer, mouth cancer in men. And with these patients, you might they might be in your clinic for thoracic pain, neck pain, even sometimes TMJ, and look into their history and see if they have a history of cancer and treatment for this cancer. They likely had to have the tumor resected. You'll see almost an L-shaped scar on the anterolateral part of their neck. And then you're also going to see um, almost like fibrous, raw, burnt looking skin because it got radiated. Radiated skin is tough skin. So much scar tissue under there. And these patients have a hard time swallowing. We end up doing some kind of like hyoid bone mobilizations, tongue mobilizations, soft tissue up in the cheeks. And then you're just standard neck mobilization, cervical mobilizations, and then a lot of soft tissue around that scar and that radiated tissue. And that's something as we've traveled, I've actually seen patients coming in for their neck and in passing, they'll bring it up. And I'm like, ah, you're in that population that I was studying. There's so much we could have done for you, you know? And so that's just kind of an unsung part of physical therapy or these patients. They could even develop lymphedema on their head and neck from the radiation. So just something to think about when you're treating these a patient further for neck pain or thoracic pain or something. Just check into their history if they have a history of head or neck cancer associated with HPV because there's some new things coming with that. Then with breast cancer, 
again, they could be there for their thoracic pain or typically it's going to be shoulder pain now. And so you have your patient who's just not getting better. You're doing everything right. A lot of times they could be misdiagnosed as frozen shoulder, which can happen after breast cancer surgery, but not very common if they were careful about it. Um, And you're doing everything right, but they're still having really painful range of motion and you're just not sure why joint mobility might seem good and you're just not really sure what's limiting them, look at their past medical. Did they have breast cancer? Have they had some sort of breast surgery? Have they have radiation? That's when they might develop something called axillary cording. Axillary cording does not have a ton of good literature pretty much says we don't know what it is. But after mastectomy and radiation, pretty much the tissues underneath the axilla bunch together and they form a cord that goes from the axilla down to the elbow. And sometimes you could see it almost like a rope coming out of the armpit down to the elbow. Sometimes you can just feel it if you press really hard. Sometimes you'll just palpate there and the patient will go, oh my God, that's it. That's when you take out your instruments or you start skin rolling and you just soft tissue like crazy. Um, I know that none of us are huge overstretchers in our typical physical therapy therapy practice, but with these patients, you are going to want to stretch and lengthen the tissues, if anything, just as a desensitization process to get them more comfortable. In their home exercise program, I have them massaging themselves a lot, doing that doorway pec stretch, doing snow angels, lying on the foam roller, anything to open up that chest and kind of underneath the axilla area. Typically within one visit of realizing that's the issue, one, they're so excited because someone finally figured out where the pain was coming from. Two, I can, I can usually get back like 50% range of motion at just one crack. Working on that soft tissue in the axilla and down to the elbow can make a huge difference. Then you'll just want to check for posture, look for scars under the armpit, scars around the breast. If you're a guy, that could be awkward. Have them look at it at home, have them massage it at home. Um, but I have seen quite a few shoulder patients being somewhat mistreated just because they didn't think to ask about their history with breast cancer and how it was treated. Yeah, those are all important things to think about, especially the the restrictions and the anterior tilting of the scapula from those soft tissue restrictions that you mentioned. Emily, talk to us a little bit about the surgeries that occur or the type of surgeries that, that that you see in this particular population and what the actual functional implications are uh, from the surgeries. This is one of my favorite things to talk about and sometimes even yell about because it's a little bit wild. So I've seen all of these surgeries happen and I do know what they look like and it could be pretty gruesome. But first and foremost, if you have breast cancer, a lot of times you're going to get your basic mastectomy and that's when they just go in and kind of burn out the tumor, burn, burn out all the fat tissue and you're left with nothing. Women who are still wanting some sort of breast after that have a few options. For one, and the one most people are probably familiar with is just a breast implant. So after your mastectomy, they'll put in um, a spacer and then every few weeks it gets injected with saline as it'll expand, 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 stretch out your tissue to the size you want. And then they'll do a swap out really quick surgery. They'll pull the spacer out and put in your, your real silicone implant. That's fine. Um, a little bit less natural looking because it's completely synthetic. And then also with that tightness in the chest wall, putting anything there that's larger than what was there before can be extremely uncomfortable. So sometimes I even do breast mobilizations where you literally just kind of grab onto it, glide it side to side, up and down, try to stretch that tissue and make it more comfortable. I've had some women come in and say, oh my, I just feel like it's going to completely rip out just because the chest wall just feels so tight with that implant in there. Another type of surgery is called the lat flap or the latissimus flap. And yes, it involves your lat. What they do is they cut out a big chunk of your lat and they snake it underneath your armpit 
with its nerve and blood supply. And it comes right in the kind of pocket where they did the mastectomy and it creates new breast tissue. A lot of times with that, you still have to do an implant on top because there's not often enough fatty tissue back there to make a big enough breast. But it's just an option if you want something a little bit more natural without a full on implant. You also need a certain amount of body fat for that to even be considered for that surgery. But again, you're taking out a huge chunk of your lat, putting it somewhere else, and then you're never being educated on postural strengthening after that. And we can get more to that in a minute. I'll go on to the very last surgery. The surgery is called a tram flap. There are quite a few surgeons um, every year who are starting to refuse to do these, but some are still doing them and they make money off of them. And some surgeons even um, sell them as a tummy tuck. And during this tram flap, they're taking out your rectus abdominis, a big chunk of it, snake it up past your belly button, up the abdomen, up to the breast with its nerve supply and blood supply, creates new breast tissue. With this one, you typically do not need an implant on top. You have to have a certain amount of adipose tissue to be qualified for the surgery, but most of our abdomens have enough adipose tissue along with the muscle. So when it comes up to make the new breast tissue. It's a little bit more natural looking, but again, terribly horrifying. You're not going to have an abdominal scar. So you're going to scar tissue there. And then you just lost a chunk of your major abdominal muscle. And then no one's going to teach you to engage your abdominals again after that. And the plastic surgeon I worked with very closely was very honest and said, yeah, I have no clue. Should I be doing something? Should I be looking at something? She's looking at the surgical site. She wants to make sure it's safe. It's not infected. It's all holding up. But there's a large percentage, and I should have looked up this percentage because I don't remember it. There's a large percentage of women who, after this tram flap surgery, never return to work, which is really scary to think about because a lot of women who have breast cancer are young women in their 30s and to think they could never return to their life or their, their former life because they had the surgery and no one really helped them recover from it appropriately is really, really sad to me. So um, you mentioned that you saw these surgeries and that they're mainly performed by plastic surgeons. Is that right? Yes. So the surgeries are performed by plastic surgeons and they typically don't follow up with physical therapy at all for any type of rehabilitation. No, not often. It depends on what type of plastic surgeon you're working with. I tried really hard to educate the one we worked with and she got really good about sending them to us. But in most parts of the country, especially the ones you and I have worked in, there is no knowledge of the plastic surgeons or the oncologists that they should be sent to physical therapy for return of function. Wow. I think that's a huge opportunity for us and a huge patient population that really could use our help that isn't being addressed. I mean, just hearing about the trauma of these surgeries and what actually goes into it, I think it's not too surprising that as orthopedic clinicians, we might run into someone presenting with shoulder pain who really has contributors from a previous mastectomy, even if it's multiple years ago, um, especially if they had one of these more traumatic surgeries that you discussed. Absolutely. And again, I feel really lucky to have been at the University of Pittsburgh because I got to work so closely with the plastic surgeon. And like I said, she very honestly said she didn't know what to do. So she let me develop a new post-op protocol for women after they underwent their breast surgery at McGee Women's Hospital. And that was really exciting. Some of the exercises that were on there were had a high prevalence of impingement. Some had a high prevalence of leading your frozen shoulder because they weren't directly addressing the you know issues following the mastectomy or the implant, etc. So we were trying to make strides in our little bubble in Pittsburgh, but I'm not seeing that carry over to the rest of the country. Similarly, for the tram flap, we started a very small study with this same plastic surgeon where she said, you know, anyone who's interested, I'm going to send them to you try to come up with something and let's try to normalize helping these women get postural strength, abdominal strength, and just 
return to a prior level of function with physical therapy after these surgeries, but it is not the norm. Yeah, that's definitely something interesting. Mike, do you have any thoughts on this? Anything you wanted to jump in with? Uh, I don't. I think this is all just pretty eye-opening as far as those uh, surgeries go. I didn't know that those two flap surgeries were even an option. Uh, so knowing that, you know, uh, this might be something that walks through the door someday or someone who may have had this surgery in the past, I think is pretty cool. Right. Yeah. And I think this is uh, a lot of information to digest, but I think it's very important, at least for us as orthopedic clinicians, to at least have the information, have the knowledge, have it in our mind space for when we do encounter those patients that just don't fit the patterns that we've typically seen. So I think to summarize, at least what I took from everything we talked about today is we can't underestimate ourselves as far as what we can provide as orthopedic clinicians to these patients that fit that mold. I think we really underestimate the value of patient education when it comes to addressing the patient complaints in the women's health population. And then I think we really underestimate ourselves in what we know in the context of getting a patient with low back pain, hip pain, and we feel like we're chasing all these random avenues as far as trying to address their musculoskeletal complaint, but not really willing to investigate and see if there's more of a women's health component. So I think having the knowledge to ask the right questions, get them to the right place, but then also having the knowledge to provide them with the education if those resources don't exist in your community is very important. And then going one step further, really knowing what to look for in the providers that you're referring to as far as saying, okay, do you do intrapelvic exams or are you just using biofeedback, just teaching a Kegel? Emily, any final thoughts? My final thoughts are listen to your patients. Listen for those offhand comments of them mentioning that this is life after motherhood or mentioning that their shoulder pain kind of wraps around their armpit and down their arm, but not in a pattern you've heard before. Just listen and don't just chalk it up as poor symptom reporting. You know, be their voice, listen to them and help them be heard because there's so many problems, so many things that women are just dealing with because they think they're expected to. And I really think the responsibility lies on us to to advocate for them and let them know that they're not just having to live this way. They can be helped and they can be heard. I'll add one more thing here at the end. Uh, I know for me personally, uh, I'm probably not going to be treating many of these patients, uh, but I'd like to know where to send them. Uh, so I know that pelvicrehab.com is uh, an online uh, thing where you can go ahead and plug in your zip code and find all of the pelvic health providers near you. So that's a good resource for clinicians and patients. I love that. And there's also some really great um, Facebook groups and Instagrams because we live in the world of social media. There are some excellent pelvic floor PTs. One of my favorite ones on Instagram is um, the pelvic guru. So someone to check out. You can find a lot of resources from her and so many others on social media. So I think that's a really good place to look to because there are women talking about it. So join the conversation. All right. Thanks, everyone for joining us for today's episode. Emily, thank you for taking the time to join us. And I know you're busy with your doula training and your yoga training, but it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Luckily, I get to talk to you every <laughs> single day. <laughs> David, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. More, more so, it's a pleasure to speak with Mike because we don't live with him. Well, that's true. I do always enjoy uh, enjoy talking to Mike. I'll begin to see you guys too. Well, Thank you, everyone, for joining us. 
Um, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. We really appreciate your support. If you made it all the way to episode seven, that means we uh, at least sounded somewhat interesting. So we appreciate you guys listening in and we hope you have a great day. Bye guys. Yeah. Thank you everyone for joining us for, so as we were saying, a physical therapy podcast. We really appreciate you guys listening in. We hope you have a great day and that you'll join us for the next week's episode.